0: You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Merrill, and welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Recently, in fact, over my Christmas break, I was able to read a new book, Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving by Peter Norton. And I have to admit, there's something about Peter Norton that made me think he wasn't a real person. I I had read Fighting Traffic, his first book, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. I did it when I was a young engineer or a a younger person. And I kind of thought, this guy's a mythical person. And then I got this new book and I thought, I wonder if he would do an interview. So today, Peter Norton is an associate professor of history in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. He teaches history of technology, social dimensions of engineering, research, and professional ethics. And he has agreed to be our guest today to chat about his new book, Autonorama. Mm-hmm. Professor Norton, Peter, welcome to the Strong Nance Podcast.
0: It's a great pleasure to be here, Chuck.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure why I had embedded in my brain that you were some mythical figure from a different age that you know I would never get a chance to chat with. But I'm I'm sure our paths have crossed somewhere at this point. But it's it's nice to finally be talking to you.
0: Same here. In fact, it's a little similar for me because I've been picking up uh, Strong Towns messages uh, for a long time, and it's a pleasure to finally meet. The Chuck Marone, whose work I've assigned to my students, whose cartoons I've shown on the
1: screen in classrooms. And here I am talking to the real man. It's my pleasure. Talk a little bit about what you teach. I find this very fascinating because I, of course, have an engineering degree. I don't know as I had professional ethics or or any of the things that you teach that actually sound quite fascinating.
0: Well, all of my students are engineering students, but I'm a historian. So we have a department in our university's engineering school, that's the University of Virginia. And that department is there for the non-engineering side. And of course, as you know, as well as anybody I've ever met, everything an engineer does has major implications for economics, for public policy, for human uh, well-being and so on, and so you know, the object of my department is to try to connect the engineering to that. So it's actually been a great pleasure making those connections, and to make them, I depend a lot on engineers who make those connections
1: too, including you. Engineers are good people. It's cool that you're in that because I, I feel like every department should have that. We're going to talk a lot about traffic and engineering and what have you today, but maybe we can just start with that. That I, I think you and I agree that engineers are in whole like pretty good people.
0: <laughs> I emphatically agree. I keep finding that engineers are, are sort of put in situations where they're sort of forced either to compromise their engineering or to compromise their career. And uh, you know, you've offered me some really valuable examples of that. And I think that's an unfair position for an engineer to be in. And I'd like to see engineers make decisions on the basis of the engineering rather than on the basis of you know the, uh, the political pressures or whatever they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's dig into this book. I'd like to start with the Depression-era city, because I, I think it's, it's hard for a lot of us to uh, today to think back to the idea that people might not have just with open arms embraced the automobile, that this was like actually a controversial thing that, that, that not everybody wanted cars. In fact, a lot of people wanted to get rid of them. What's the shift that started then that allowed us to come to see the automobile as the solution and and not the problem in our cities.
0: I like the way you framed that question because the automobile was not originally sold as a solution to our transportation needs. In other words, as an all-purpose solution. It was originally sold as a special purpose tool. So, you know, like if a Carpenter has a toolbox. It's not like there's any one tool in that toolbox. that does everything. And so the car began as a really valuable new tool that had special uses. It was not a way to get to work every day. It might be a way to get to uh, the countryside on Sunday. It might be a way to get deliveries to a customer for a farmer to get the crop to market. So it was a special purpose tool. And so, you know, this meant that when some people insisted on using the car for everything uh, driving everywhere, there was some sort of resistance to that. And it was, you know, look, your car is not a necessity. Why should it be endangering other people on our city streets? Why should it be clogging the curbs of our streets, obstructing other vehicles, making a nuisance out of itself, uh, slowing down the streetcar schedules? So all of those criticisms reflect a common presumption that the car is not really for everything. Uh, It has a special purpose, but if you overuse it, that's an abuse. And there was a lot of resistance, mainly on grounds of safety and its use of space, limited space in cities.
1: There's this idea that you come back to a few times in the book about satisfaction and dissatisfaction. You know, as someone brought up in this consumer-driven society, we're told over and over that the market is about satisfying consumer demand and satisfying our our needs. Yet, there's a certain tension with dissatisfaction that the automobile mm-hmm. brings. I think it's most apparent. We, we kind of live with it today, but I, I think the, the the black and white of it was much more apparent back in this early days. The Great Depression, World War II, slightly after that. Can you talk a little bit about this premise of dissatisfaction being such a key to the acceleration of the adoption of the automobile during that early phase?
0: Yeah. So, in the early phase, the predominant view about business was that if you're in business, you're going to have to keep the consumer satisfied. That's your job. If you don't satisfy the consumer, they take their business elsewhere and your business will fail. And that was pretty much Henry Ford's idea of business, Uh, gonna make a car that works, that's reliable, it's less expensive than the competition, easy to maintain, it's gonna satisfy, in other words, the consumer. Now, that actually, that model works beautifully for a while, but it, it was reaching a kind of maximum in the 20s as everybody who wanted a car could get one And there were a lot of people who thought, well, I don't need a car. I have other ways of getting around. A lot of people who had a car were keeping it for years and years, fixing it and maintaining it. And uh, Ford was at the top of the market. And General Motors, one of their vice presidents, a guy named Charles Kettering, who was an electrical engineer, realized, um, really, there's another way to do this that can expand your market, get you past just the people who just Want your car because it meets a need. And he wrote an article in 1929 for his colleagues in business. And he had a really counterintuitive message that, and it's captured in the title of the article. The title of the article was Keep the Consumer Dissatisfied, which was a a really attention-grabbing title. And it was really just for other business people to read. It was in a business journal. And his message was if you satisfy the consumer, the consumer will buy what you have wants and they'll be happy and you know, won't buy anything else. You have to keep promising them more and more. So, you know, the, a lot of people have heard about the annual model change uh, for the car being introduced by General Motors, or they, they had a progression of marks from Chevrolet at the bottom to Cadillac at the top to keep you coming back. But this also worked at, a, at the big scale. So it wasn't just at the scale of the individual car. Ah, uh, General Motors started promising also a city where there was no no congestion, no crashes. You could never get it, and that's okay because that keeps the consumer dissatisfied. You just have to keep promising it. And you got to make those promises credible. You can do that by making the depiction of this city of the future very vivid and attractive. And you can also make that vision credible by invoking the latest, most amazing technology that makes it seem like anything's possible. And this will keep people consuming your cars to get to this future that's being promised instead of pursuing other alternatives.
1: I wrote this down from the book, and I want to ask you this now, and then I want to return to this at the end. You said, if, if we can't sell automobiles, sell driving, right? If we can't sell the car itself, sell the experience of the car and use that to shift our... In a sense, our dissatisfaction. There's an insidious kind of relationship that comes out of this between the automobile industry and, and really public policymakers in terms of who's satisfying what and whose responsibility it is to satisfy. If selling the automobile is is has a limited shelf life, how selling driving, then there's an endless demand for that in a sense.
0: That's a really important distinction between selling the car and selling the driving. If you just sell the car, you reach a point pretty quickly where, you know, there's so many cars on the road. It's kind of a hassle to drive. Their roads are too crowded. Uh, There's better ways to get around. Your city probably offers them because we're talking about a world where driving isn't being sold yet. So what uh, people in the industry who want to keep their market growing figured out, and they were very explicit about this, I'm not speculating, they they wrote it down in black and white and said, uh, we have to persuade people that actually driving is something that they should be doing for every errand, not just for certain errands. We should be changing the conversation about traffic congestion so that instead of people saying, oh, look, there's traffic congestion, we need to deter people from using this spatially extravagant mode of transportation, the car, and and getting them to use other things, which was the way of dealing with congestion, like, say, banning curb parking to deter driving. We need to get them to sort of redefine congestion as not enough road space. Same thing with crashes. At first, when cars were hitting people in other cars, the typical way of understanding this was, oh, well, you know, driving is kind of inherently dangerous. We should be discouraging it. We should make, be making people drive slowly. And the people who wanted a growing market for cars said, no, we have to redefine safety as making fast driving safe. And that means building special highways and so on. So that's, that's a shift. And that shift is the shift that takes you from just selling cars to selling cars and selling driving such that congestion is no longer the consequence of too much driving, but the symptom of insufficient road capacity and such that crashes are no longer the consequence of a world where everybody has to drive everywhere, but rather a world where we haven't designed our roads for safe and fast driving.
1: Is this something I understood going in, but you described it so well, it shifts the burden of, in a sense, satisfying the demand of the public from the person providing the the thing—General Motors or Ford, or, you know, providing an automobile—to really public policymakers and the public. And and the automobile companies can, in a sense, say, "Well, this is this is now market demand." Right. How did that shift happen? And. I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about the effects of that, because it it seems to me like that was the coup de grace, in a sense, of the motordom industry.
0: That's a really key transition, and you put your finger right on it. Uh, It's really crucial. I have to begin with how this has usually been explained to us and how I learned it growing up. What I learned growing up is, well, eventually, driving became the majority choice. It's what the marketplace chose it's what the sort of free democratic majority chose and therefore in a free market economy and a democratic society well then public policy follows from that because public policy reflects the majority interest and what i found as a historian digging around is that it was actually pretty much the exact opposite by that i mean Long before most American families owned a car, the people who were selling cars were working on changing the public policy formulas and the standards so that if there was conflict between drivers and other road users, drivers would get priority even when only a minority of people were drivers, or to, to change the traffic safety formula such that when cars were Causing crashes with pedestrians and other cars, that this would be defined not as the the effect of having too much fast driving in your city, but rather the effect of not having enough uh, dedicated motor roads through the city. So they work very hard on public policy. And by they, I mean the interest groups involved in the automobile industry, not just the manufacturers. They had a nice word for themselves, which you've mentioned, which is motoredom. They called themselves that, you know, 100 years ago. And I thought it was a good word, so I've kind of revived it. And they made sure that uh, the laws changed, uh, you know, who has priority on the road, for example. They made sure that the engineering standards changed. Uh, For example, the auto industry really were the people behind the development of the divided highway with the great separated interchanges and so on. They even made sure and worked hard to change social norms so that, you know, a pedestrian crossing the street wherever they wanted, which was the norm before the car would not be the norm anymore. And then, as you mentioned, once you've changed those laws, engineering standards and social norms, then every time you have a problem, the solution is more public policy to safely
1: accommodate more driving. I went and watched one of the videos that you referenced in the book. And I think all of us, everyone listening to this, can picture the voice in their brain of, you know, oh, the future of automobiles. There's this, there's this kind of commanding movie 1950s voice, uh, selling you the, right. the congestion free highways of tomorrow and and all that. And I think we all can can relate to that. You introduced me. I was aware of Futurama, but not to the depth that I got it out of reading your book. This first Futurama must have been quite a show. Can you kind of paint the scene a little bit for people? This
0: was developed at General Motors. I mean, originally the the idea for depicting this city of the future was at the Shell Oil Company, and General Motors picked it up in the thirties. And this was all part of uh, Charles Kettering's vision. So Charles Kettering again was the vice president at General Motors, and his idea was. You know, if you're really going to get the city to be rebuilt in favor of driving, you have to show a goal, an end point where that actually looks like it's worth doing. And you can make that happen if you make a gigantic model, a diorama of the future. And this is where the word futurama comes from. It's a diorama of the future. I argue in the book that we're in the fourth generation of this depiction of the future now. And so, The book's title is a fusion of Autonomous and Futurama, to give you Autonorama. So anyway, Futurama One was an enormous model. The exact square footage eludes my memory, but on the scale of half a football field, of the city of 1960, so that's the city of 20 years in the future, at the point of the World's Fair of 1939 to 40 in New York, where General Motors unveiled this, was the most popular exhibit there, the lines were enormously long. And it's no wonder it was a spectacular show. You sat in a moving chair car, viewing below you this future unfolding as if you were watching it from an airplane, listening to that sort of semi divine voice that you referenced, uh, describing this wonder world of 1960, as they said. And as the model showed, uh, you know, the model was very explicit about this. There were no crashes and there was no traffic congestion. Little tiny cars actually were moving in the grooves of this track. They never had to park anywhere because when they got to the end of the track, they went back under and came back again. So it really looked like an amazing city where driving everywhere worked.
1: In the book, you've got a couple snapshots of this and you see people wide-eyed, staring down. I think about my grandparents and my great-grandparents, really, because my, my grandfather grew up in the Great Depression. My great-grandparents would have been you know, adults during that time. I try to picture them. A lot of this would have seemed like magic to them in the same way that smartphones and AI and all these things feel like magic to us. The promise of this was the same though. And I, I think that's what I'm trying to, I'd like you to elaborate on a little bit is the things that they were being sold at this time are the things that we're being sold today almost word for word, right?
0: Yeah, this is what uh, really got me to write the book is when the salesmanship that I saw going on for the sake of autonomous vehicles, and I'm not just talking about useful incremental improvements like automatic braking. I'm talking about this visionary utopian stuff that pervades the selling and the promotion of the autonomous vehicle future. It is almost identical. You said the technology feels and seems like magic. Arthur C. Clarke, the uh, science fiction writer and engineer who thought of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, said it beautifully. He said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And if that sounds a little far-fetched, all you have to do is remember the first time we tried out a smartphone or the first time we tried an online search, and it really did feel like breathtakingly magical. Machine learning is doing... Magical like accomplishments uh, right now. The power of that kind of technology is that it leads us to suppose that incredible promises are credible. And that's what uh, the technology of 1939 was doing for Futurama One. And that's what the technology of 2022 is doing for Autonorama or Futurama Four, the fourth generation of, of this. Utopian techno futurism,
1: Futurama Two was the '64 World's Fair. Is that when it was?
0: Correct. Yes, and they called it that, Futurama Two. That was General Motors' exhibit at the New York World's Fair of '64 and '65.
1: And the hype then was this electronic age, right? We we had kind of gone in the uh, the mechanical age, which was the first Futurama, and now the second one, we're getting into the the electronic age. And the idea that all these promises of congestion-free roads and perfectly safe driving and environmental friendliness was just around the corner because of electronics, even to the point where you were going to have self-driving cars. That was a new idea to me that they were looking at that point at having fully autonomous vehicles even back at, at that point.
0: Yeah, the uh, complete or almost completely autonomous vehicles was surprisingly well developed in the 1950s. And it was electronics that was making that look credible. And in the 50s, the wonder electronics of that era were transistors. So, you know, you don't have to remember the 50s to recognize that, of course, television is impressing people. This is also the beginning of space flight. Sputnik was 1957. This kind of technology is looking very impressive. The electronics are small enough and rugged enough that you could have some automation of steering and braking, uh, for example. And there were some impressive experiments done with this, just enough to attract some enthusiasm among electronics companies, the predecessors of today's tech companies, and automakers to engage in a kind of promotional spiral that is really what Futurama 2 was all about. And we're in another promotional spiral like that today.
1: Can we talk a little bit about Walt Disney? I am fascinated by Walt Disney and there's part of his life story that is is inspiring. And there's other parts that to me are like tragic, unfulfilled promises. Epcot Center, I have mixed feelings about, but it's clear that he had a vision and that vision was, in a sense, almost countercultural, even though he was at the center of this cultural zeitgeist in many ways. I mean, He was an advocate of highways, yet seemingly understood the, the limitations and the, the difficulties with it. Can you talk a little bit about him? And I, I had not known much about Victor Gruen either. The two of them seemed to struggle with both, in a sense, embracing Motorama and, and this whole idea of a motoring future, yet really in their, in their work, struggling against it. What's that dichotomy, and why are they such interesting people in that sense? So
0: these two people found each other really distant. Vigman was originally from Vienna, who came to America and always struggled to adapt his idea of the livable city which for him meant Vienna, his home city where people could walk everywhere or take the streetcar, into for a world that had already become highly car dependent, namely the USA in the 50s. Now, it's interesting that Walt Disney's centerpiece for his original Disneyland in in, uh, California was Main Street USA, which is this recreation of a highly walkable Main Street where Everything you need is a pleasant walk apart from everything else you need. Uh, there's also a streetcar that runs right up the middle of the street. And by the 50s, this was looking from from a sort of modernist point of view as nostalgic. And he didn't want to just be nostalgic. He wanted to make this work in the world of 1950s America. And so that meant surrounding Disneyland with satellite parking putting in futuristic-looking monorails that would move people to the center of Disneyland quickly. And like Disney, Victor Gruen, the city planner, was looking for a way to reconcile a world where cars were already dominant with a world that he thought made more sense, where the cities, at least, were places where you could walk. And so Disney was inspired by Gruen. He decided he needed a bigger canvas than Disneyland in California afforded him. So he got an enormous parcel of land in central Florida that became Disney World. The center of it was his experimental prototype city of tomorrow, Epcot, that's what it stands for, where he wanted to have a planned community where nobody had to drive anywhere. Although to get to the periphery of this, you did have to drive. Um, This was his, his grand vision. He didn't live to see it fulfilled, and his uh, estate or the company that he founded after his death, reinvented it as something much smaller and more commercial than Disney ever had in mind.
1: Yeah. It's long occurred to me, I mean, since I was a, a, a young kid and a, you know becoming an engineer, that Disney World itself, like the resort complex, is in many ways like an ideal form of mixing of transportation and and land use, where you actually have discrete places, largely connected by transit, with some acquiescence to the automobile on the periphery in places. But it felt like both of these men kind of struggled with this idea that the way they needed the world to work to make their enterprises make sense, (laughs) contrasted with the way the world, they wanted it to work to make it make sense you know, from a, from a human standpoint. I mean, am I going on too much about these guys?
0: No, you're exactly right. Both of them struggled with wanting to have a kind of a community where, as you said, you know, there were different modes of transportation. Um, Disney personally was a big enthusiast of rail, including old fashioned rail and also the what he considered futuristic monorails, people movers. He did not want people to have to drive anywhere in Epcot, which he imagined would be a real city inhabited by real working people going to work every day, never by car. Gruen similarly wanted this too, and both were trying to make this work in a country that they were convinced was already committed to the automobile, and therefore they surrounded these visions with parking. So, for example, Gruen had a plan for Fort Worth, Texas, where the center was entirely walkable but it was surrounded by parking garages to give people access to that.
1: I mean I've I've long found it interesting because we we do even today still have this I think struggle between you know what mm. is the market preference what is the distorted public policy preference how do those two actually you actually say towards the end of the book and I I want to get to this in a minute but how you know what what are people's preferences I think you said specifically like I don't know who knows It feels to me like these two men in their prime struggled with this and in a sense were thwarted in a way that, I don't know, I I personally find a little tragic.
0: Oh, I agree. In fact, with Disney, it's a little harder to say because he died before Epcot Center was compromised, but Gruen really was a kind of tragic figure in the sense that by late in his career, he was quite embittered even with his own work. I mean, he invented the the shopping mall as we know it. And he wanted the interiors of shopping malls to have all of the amenities of civic life, including park-like settings, libraries, post offices, meeting places, cafes. And when he saw what they had really become, it depressed him a great deal. And some of his late writings are kind of amusingly bitter about this. So I think I think he would agree with you. Uh, Chuck, that it was a sort of tragic ending to their careers. Cinnabon
1: did not motivate him a <laughs> <I thought>. lot. <laughs> I want to keep moving forward in this story because I think the thing that I, as someone born in the seventies and having, you know, some awareness of what was going on at the end of the cold war and, uh, and the shift I graduated from high school in 91. So that would have been during the first Gulf war. I graduated from engineering school in 95. So, you know, I was in the National Guard during that so called peace dividend. There was this period of time where we had built the interstates, we had won the Cold War, we, you know, the impetus for building this big highway system across the country. It seemed like there was a point in time where we could have, in a sense, like the blackjack dealer at the table, like this deck is done. We finished this project and in a sense walked away and said, all right, you know, project completed what's next, but we didn't, we did something else. Uh, We really kind of doubled down on this idea that we could solve congestion and safety and on and on by doing what, because it seems to me like we had the best chance of changing at that point and we chose not to what's that story. The trouble is you're
0: describing what could have been in the 1990s, a situation in which the consumer writ large, that is the American public, could have been satisfied. Well, we've got a complete interstate highway system now. We can concentrate on less extravagant, more down-to-earth, common-sense things uh, that that work and that we know work. This goes back to Charles Kettering's warning back in 1929 from General Motors when he says, you know, you have to keep the consumer dissatisfied, and to do that, you got to promise something much more than just "oh, it works." Oh, it's sufficient. You got to promise something really attractive, um, and that means if you're talking about road transportation, that means zero crashes and zero congestion. This is this is the kind of um, ambitious vision you need that will keep people on a treadmill of consumption. Now, that treadmill of consumption for an individual might mean unaffordable new automobiles every couple of years. But for a country, it means constant, giant, expensive transportation programs of various kinds. So officially, the Interstate Highway Project that was launched in 56 was supposed to be over by 72. It took another 15 years at least. And it was supposed to um, cost about 50 billion. It ended up costing over 100 billion. But presumably by the time it's done, you don't need another huge project because after all, the first project was supposed to work. Yeah. Well, in the 90s, people who you know, were hoping to keep the consumer dissatisfied, so to speak, got together. Uh, some of these people were quite alarmed from a business point of view that the Cold War was ending because their big customer, the Pentagon, was willing to pay a lot of money for what they had to sell. Uh, They were looking for a different customer, but they they really liked the federal government as a customer because the federal government, you know, will pay big money. And so they got together just as the Cold War was ending and sold Congress on what they called smart highways to eliminate traffic congestion and to eliminate crashes. And that's going to be achieved on highways that are in some way intelligent, i.e. equipped And Chuck, in mentioning the Gulf War, you're mentioning what really gave them their chance to get the attention of the American people. So in the Gulf War, particularly in the opening phases of the invasion part, talking January of 91, there were these uh, attacks on Iraqi targets that were captured on video camera from the the, missiles coming in, Uh, they were called smart bombs and they were broadcast on TV and they they took people's breath away with their precision. And that word smart became a kind of a magic word and smart technology became therefore the way to sell a lot of other things too. Rockwell International, one of the military contractors that made these weapons, fearing that its military market was gonna shrink with the end of that war and the cold war started an ad campaign where they said, we are going to use our smart technology that we developed for the military to fight a war on jet, and they did. And it cost a lot of money. I'm not sure it achieved much, but it was a prodigious effort. And in the book, I call this Futurama 3 because they were promising the same thing that we were promised in Futurama 1 and Futurama 2 they didn't actually call it Futurama 3, but it seemed to me to be a very fair name for what they were selling.
1: So then we get to Futurama 4, which is this, I think I called it Autonorama. You you said Autonorama.
0: I'm going to explain that a little bit. So Autonorama is a fusion, and it, this is where the pronunciation comes from too, of Autonomous yeah. and Futurama, hence yeah. Autonorama.
1: It's amazing because as I've been writing for over a decade now, every time anything about congestion comes up or traffic safety comes up, there's always a flood of people who will rush into the comment section or our Facebook feed or whatever, and they're right away touting the great benefits of autonomous vehicles. They are going to solve every one of these problems that we have. I will confess this because I'm an American. I live in this culture. I have a a car, I drive. At times there have been points where the promise of this has seemed very appealing to me as well. Wow. AI seems really advanced. It seems a lot like magic, but then I've been in a room with a lot of these people who are working on these things and I've watched what they do. And I've listened to them describe things. I've come to the conclusion myself that Whatever promise this is, is a long ways off. And the people who are actually dealing with this don't seem to know a whole lot about how cities work or how transportation systems work, or even as you've said, and, and I've heard you know Jarrett Walker describe this really well, is like the geometry of city space works. I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you about this iteration, but let me start with this one. Why do we want to believe this so badly? Why are we so eager? to, you know, despite like decades and decades and decades of, of being sold the same thing. And and it feels like a little bit like Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football. Why do we want to believe so badly? I maybe asking you to be cultural psychologist a little bit, but, but what, what's your take on that? Well,
0: it's interesting you put it that way, because a lot of the internal conversation among the people who want us to want autonomous vehicles is... How come we can't persuade people to want them more? There's a bit of a dichotomy there where, yes, there's an attraction to them. At the same time, the people trying to sell them are expressing constant frustration that their vision isn't really getting enormous traction with the public. There's some real disappointment about that. Now, to make it look attractive, though, the easiest thing to do is to point to the horrific Casualties we have on our roads, you know, something on the order of 37,000 deaths a year, not to mention all of the seriously injured people as well. And, you know, this can easily become the basis for a moral claim that if you care about that, then you have to want autonomous vehicles because autonomous vehicles don't get sleepy, they don't drive impaired, they don't get distracted or impatient and therefore they won't have these kinds of crashes. And so this has been maybe the the biggest selling point and maybe one of the biggest attractions to the public. It's, I think, clearly a, a dead end, or at least to get to a point where autonomous vehicles really could make a difference in that casualty rate, would take a enormous investment far beyond what's already been spent. And what's already been spent, according to the people who've estimated, is something like $100 billion, for which we have very little to show. That is $100 billion of public and private money to make autonomous vehicles work. And they're not really working yet unless you want a limited drive from one destination to another in suburban Phoenix. There is not a clear public demand, but there is a very strong effort to make it appear to be a clear public demand by by depicting this future as safe, crash-free, congestion-free, and even zero
1: emissions. I always tell people that I feel like we could have the safety aspects of autonomous driving today with autonomous driving if we were willing to do one of two things, either drive extremely slow or limit all points of potential conflict, in which case, why would we need autonomous? Vehicle? You know, if, if we were willing to do both of those things, what does the autonomous get you? Is that, is that kind of where you're at with this? Yeah.
0: And, you know, it's interesting because the minute you say something like slow down, that sounds to people like, oh, well, now you're making my commute take twice as long. But what's really interesting is that actually it's almost the opposite of that because The enormous commitment of our departments of transportation and so on to ensuring that we can go an average of whatever it is, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour to work, has the highly predictable effect of making everything farther apart. Mm -hmm. The perverse effect is that while we may be traveling faster to work, all of our destinations are also further apart. And that's almost a necessity because once people are driving fast, you can't make things close together because then you would have to have too many intersections and so on. And that would slow everybody back down again. So I think it's possible to have a place where it's safe because people aren't going fast and it doesn't take you any longer at all to get where you're going. So, yeah, I think I think you're you've expressed it uh, very nicely Um, and we have some real world examples The Netherlands was imitating the US in the sixties and their safety record was getting worse and worse every year. And the minute they prioritized slow transportation in cities, it reversed. And so while you can still drive almost everywhere in the Netherlands, as they made it safer for people on slower modes of transportation, it got safer for everybody.
1: One of the promises of a Tonorama is zero emissions. And we become very sensitive to this. We try very hard not to be partisan or even to project any partisanship out of strong towns. But there were a lot of people across the political spectrum who were very bewildered by the current infrastructure bill, the infrastructure bill that just recently passed, and how, despite the, I think, the marketing brochure of clean energy and reduced carbon output and reduced emissions seemed to kind of double, triple down on automobile transportation, but kind of wrap that in this, this veneer of, well, we're going to have electric vehicles and that's going to reduce emissions and make everything green. I want to give you a chance to react to that.
0: I heartily applaud looking at this in a nonpartisan way, because if we do look at it in a nonpartisan way, we're losing people that we need to include to get to where we want to go. And moreover, it's not inherently a partisan issue at all. Because, for example, we got into the jam where, that we're in now through extraordinary public government projects. And so from that point of view, you could say a conservative critique would explain how we got into this jam. And at the same time, this jam is also inequitable and burdensome on low-income people in particular and with major environmental consequences. So it has a more liberal angle to it, too. So there's a real opportunity, I think, here for a bipartisan across the spectrum effort. Now, to get to your more specific point, yeah, the infrastructure bill, I think, exemplifies a hazard that we face as a society and we faced it before. By that, I mean, when we got the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health in 1964, A lot of people think, well, that's when we really started to address this public health disaster that um, cigarette smoking was. And that's not quite true. There was a couple of decades where tens of millions of people's lives were cut short, often by a decade or more, because the initial response was, all we have to do is come up with high-tech cigarettes and if that sounds far-fetched, the cigarettes with filters were advertised as amazing technology filters that will you know, scrub the smoke before it ever reaches you and so on. And that turned out, we know now, was a lethal distraction that cost a lot of people uh, decades off their lives. And I think we're in an analogous situation where we've gotten the warning about carbon emissions, sustainability, and so on. But it's becoming an opportunity for some to say, well, look, you drive just as much as you want in this electric vehicle. And some of those interest groups have gotten the federal government on board, where we will have uh, billions going into supporting charging infrastructure, perhaps supporting subsidies for electric vehicle purchases, and so on. There's good arguments to be made for all of that, but only if we also recognize that we do need less energy intensive transportation. And the amazing thing about less energy intensive transportation is that it's also cheaper. It can also be more fiscally sustainable, let alone environmentally sustainable. A lot of it can be more affordable for the individual and not just for the the public budget and so on.
1: When the discussion of autonomous vehicles come up, I find myself reverting back to my curmudgeonly nature and I, I feel a little bit like old fashioned because all these, you know, there's a lot of policy people who promote this stuff, but then there's a lot of like youth enthusiasm about it as well. And I, I, I kind of feel like, oh, maybe I'm just getting old. And I want to read this quote from your book because it gave me a lot of uh, affirmation. And it comes from the early part of the book. It says, "quote Suppose today's medical experts could travel back in time." taking supplies along and offer people of 150 years ago, three modern techniques, which three would yield the best medical MRI systems, dialysis machines, and stents or sanitation vaccines and antiseptics. And I walked away from that quote, just, I I think I put the book down and just walked around for about an hour and, and soaked in that because obviously the lower tech solutions would offer such broad benefits to society that you would be foolish and ridiculous to bring back an MRI machine when when simple sanitation would make such huge benefits. Take that analogy and and draw it forward in this transportation debate, because we we haven't talked about biking and walking specifically, but I I feel like there's this whole realm of the curmudgeonly uh, response that is actually, if we want to talk smart, It's where the smart is today.
0: Well, I think one of the biggest distractions we tend to get into, and I include myself in this, when we talk about technology, is technology good or technology bad? And I think the cure for that is to think about a carpenter and asking a carpenter, you know, which tool in your toolbox is best. And of course, any good carpenter will scratch their head and think, well, it's not like any tool is best. It's just that different tools are good for different jobs, right? And I think that's what we have to keep re-familiarizing ourselves with, namely, that it's not a question of autonomous vehicles being good or bad. It's not a question of the technology being good or bad. It's a question of what do we want and what do we need to get there? What can we afford? What do we have now versus what do we have to develop over a period of years and it's also a question of you know what's practically feasible so lidar for example is extremely impressive so this is that sort of light based radar that's used by autonomous vehicles to detect their environment and and waymo uses that in arizona and so i'm not here to argue that lidar is not amazing it is amazing And I'm not here to argue that LIDAR has no practical uses. It has lots of practical uses. I'm here to say that maybe this extremely expensive, extremely high-tech technology is not going to be something that we can deploy on the scale of tens or hundreds of millions of units, given the fact that each one costs typically thousands of dollars. Maybe we can find things that give us a greater value for the dollar and limit LIDAR to those particular uses where it's best suited. So it's a question of finding the right application for the tool, not deciding which tools are good and which tools are bad.
1: I find myself as well, not anti-car. There's a lot of times when people, you know, we're in a war on cars and we got to stop the automobile. It, it seems like every now and then we get people who come to our conversation who are like, it's all about just banning cars. I'm not reflexively anti-car. But I I do get frustrated because there are a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox that do seem to be very low lift, very easy tools to use. I don't know why I need to drive six blocks to get groceries. It seems like there are other alternatives to that being an auto trip. Throughout this book, you set up car dependency, not automobiles as the problem. What's your alternative to car dependency?
0: Well... Let me start by saying that I think that if a person really appreciates cars, and I think I do as well, then that's the person who's going to be most troubled by the idea that there should be used for everything. It's like if you're a good uh, gourmet, then you know that all of the courses in your meal shouldn't be dessert, right? That just doesn't make sense, even though you like dessert, right? Right. So it's the same thing. If you if you recognize what a car is for, then you don't like to see it used for the wrong job. If you're a carpenter, you recognize that a wrench makes a poor hammer and so on. So it's not like hating cars. It's like recognizing what they're good for. Now, as for you know where you can go where the car isn't the all-purpose tool that it was never meant to be, this is where it's tantalizing to me to think about all of the wonderfully affordable simple, feasible things we can do, many of which ought to be attractive to people across the whole political spectrum. A classic one, and this has been well-known for a long time, is just let people open up a convenience store in a residentially zoned neighborhood. That should be something that everyone can agree on because it's not expensive. It gives people more political freedom, not less. It's less in government intrusion, not more. It's good for everybody. And it lets people walk to a destination, ride a bike to a destination um, and so on. Now that, that's a maybe the most politically inclusive example, but there's many more things you can do too. Um, it's interesting to me that the app Waze, W-A-Z-E, which evaluates uh, driver's experience, according to that app, the country where drivers have the most pleasant driving experiences is in the Netherlands. You have to ask, what could that possibly be? Uh, And it turns out that actually, once you remove people from the road who don't want to be driving, you make the road a more pleasant experience for the remainder who actually do want to enjoy their driving experience. So that too is a feasible, relatively low-tech, relatively inexpensive thing that serves lots of interests. It improves safety, reduces carbon emissions, improves public health, and so on. So I can see a lot of those kinds of things. And in some of those things, there's a wonderful place for state-of-the-art high technology. Like, for example, if you can get a ticket for your train that also serves uh, as a card to retrieve a public transportation bicycle like they have in the Netherlands. Uh, That takes a lot of technology too. So it's not technology good or bad. It's finding the right
1: application for it. I've got one more question after this, but I think this is the last book question. I asked you at the very beginning about the statement, if we can't sell automobiles, sell driving and the idea that you know, at some point in the, uh, in the early days of the automobile experiment, manufacturers made that shift from selling automobiles to selling the experience of driving. In, in the future that you envision, in the future that I, I think we share as a, as a vision, one that doesn't have auto dependency at its core, what's the sales pitch for that? What are we selling to people?
0: Um, You know, I would love to have experts on this kind of messaging get together and and talk about that question. I could offer some examples that come from the fact that I've studied how we were sold car dependency, how we, we were sold driving. I think a great starting point might be to sell choices. It feels constraining for most Americans in a suburb when they have a task to complete, and almost any task, if they can't execute it at home or or online, it means they're going to have to drive somewhere, even if it's only to get a carton of eggs. Could we not have a future of choices, a future where you can still drive, but also for a lot of ordinary daily necessities, you can walk, or ride a bike, perhaps an electric bike, if, if that's what you want, or uh, take some form of, of uh, transit that will get you where you need to go. I think we have a lot of, a lot more possibilities to explore about how we can present a future of more choices to correct a recent past where our choices have been so meager by comparison.
1: Last question, you, you are a professor you get to spend your time with young younger people, uh, people who have not been beaten down by the the man or indoctrinated by the profession. Um, but you know, are idealistic? How hopeful are you of the future, or how scared for the future are you? I mean, it. I wonder what your take is on the next best hope we have.
0: So my students are all engineering students, and of course. They're a really wide spectrum of kinds of students, with with idealism or career advancement in mind. Once in a while, they terrify me when I see that they have learned to become dutiful learners of inherited standards and procedures that got us into the jam that we're in, and I feel fortunate to have the chance, and I try to make the best of it that I can, to provoke them to ask questions and provoke them to exercise that independent reasoning faculty that any professional requires. And to that end, I've assigned your blog post uh, that you wrote when you got a warning from your state board as A a sort of provocation to say you actually can be an independent thinker. You may have to take some chances to do it. So I really stress um, that, that, that independent thinking is not optional and that being a good engineer does not mean just doing as you're told or just unquestioningly applying the standards. At the same time, though, of course, I do see a lot of Eager, enthusiastic, committed people who want to take on the challenges, the enormous challenges of our time. And um, I just try to give them examples of that that might be useful to them as they look for the way to make that
1: happen. You've been listening to Peter Norton. His new book is A The Illusory Promise of High Tech Driving. I love this book, it was fascinating. I, I learned a ton. I walked away from it feeling like uh, there's a lot that we can accomplish together. Peter, Professor Norton, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Let's keep in touch.
0: Great, Chuck Barone, I really enjoyed it, and I, and I like the sound of that a lot, let's do that.
1: If people wanna follow you and your work besides picking up the book, what, what would be the best place to do that?
0: Well, uh, I have a web page they can find by Googling my name and University of Virginia, I have a a Facebook page that I post on occasionally called uh, Fighting Traffic, uh, and that includes some stuff about Autonorama as well.
1: We will make sure and steer people that way. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill.
0: That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who oh, made city? I like you.
1: I like your vision of the of the world.